Taking a pill to kill your body is commendable. Taking a pill to cure your soul is deplorable. And God help us to know the difference. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity Magazine. Here on The Profile, we like to speak to a different Christian every week and find out something of their life story and what makes them tick. I'm really pleased to say that my guest on the show this week is Dr. Neil T. Anderson. Dr. Anderson is the founder and president of Freedom in Christ Ministries. He's a former aerospace engineer, and Dr. Anderson has 20 years of experience as a pastor. He then wrote several best-selling books, including The Bondage Breaker and Victory Over the Darkness, which have sold in their millions. Freedom in Christ resources are widely used in many churches in the US, the UK and beyond, having been translated into more than 30 languages. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. Good to be here. You'd love to start by going right back to the beginning. Tell me, what was your experience of God as a child? <laughs> well, I went to, uh, in hindsight, what turned out to be kind of a liberal church. You know, I heard all the Christian stories and whatever else. And, and truth of the matter is, there was never a time in my life I didn't believe in God. Uh, but I didn't really come to Christ until I was in my 20s. <laughs> and, um, and very soberly so, because I suddenly realized I had played church all those years. You know, so I'll give one credit to that. I mean, the the moral message of Christianity was embedded in me in an early age. And so I never got trapped into some of the major vices that people struggle with. And so for that, I'm grateful. But I kind of feel bad in a way that somebody never told me the truth about who I really am in Christ and what it really means to be a child of God. And uh, so kind of discovered that on my own. Interesting part about that is all my siblings, there's five of us all grew up in the same church, all found Christ outside of that, somewhere along our experience through Campus Crusade for Christ and my brother Art University. It's kind of interesting. You would hope that people could go to a good church and at least discover who they are in Christ, but that isn't always true. It is funny, isn't it? You, one might wonder how it's possible to go to church from an early age, week in, week out, and not know God's kind of properly, is what you're saying? You didn't, you, you didn't really have that experience, as you say, until much later. How is it possible for someone to go to church so regularly and yet miss the core truth of Christianity? Well, you, truth can't set you free if you don't know the truth. And um, so this, is, this has been a struggle throughout you know, church history, to be honest with you. So it's not a new phenomenon. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of what, what I used to call uh, cultural Catholics, for instance, down in Mexico, you know, they bring their children out and they bless their homes and children. They don't have a clue what they believe. They don't, they don't have any understanding whatsoever. And I always kind of, you know, relay that to Catholics. But I said, now nah, I'm seeing an awful lot of cultural evangelical Christians as well who kind of sit in church every Sunday, but really haven't really engaged God in a personal way. And to me, that's sad. I mean, it's just really, really sad. It's, a, it's like spending all that time going to church and then missing the real thing. And it can happen. It can happen. You know, it happened to me for, you know, 20 some years of my life. But um, so that's why I write. That's why I try to help the church. I'm saying, 
you know, listen, don't you know who you are? Don't you know what it means to be a child of God? Don't you know that God loves you? Don't you know all the simple things that every believer should know, but doesn't necessarily know that. Can you remember growing up what your hopes were? Did you have a career plan in mind? I mean, I know you went on into the military and even as an aerospace engineer, pretty remarkable uh, career path. But can you remember as a child what you wanted to do? No, I, I, I honestly didn't. I, I uh, In my latest book, I kind of wrote, I'm a not self-made man. I mean, I wasn't even particularly looking for God and he found me. I wasn't particularly looking for uh, you know, any kind of a major ministry that kind of found me as well. So, uh, no, I didn't. I have always had this kind of belief, you know, bloom where you're planted, do the best you can where you're at, and then God will move you on at the right time. And, uh, and, and there's been so many surprises in my life that I would never anticipate it. Like uh, teaching at a Talbot School of Theology, for instance, I said, well, that just came out of the absolute blue. <laughs> and frankly, being founder of uh, Freedom in Christ Ministries, I never had any desire to have any kind of a global ministry. I would have really, truly been content being a country pastor and you could pay me with chickens and eggs. And, you know, so I'm not an ambitious person in seeking some title or some position or whatever. But on the other hand, I'm kind of a hardworking farm boy. And I just kind of assumed responsibility for, you know, who I am and what I'm supposed to be. And and that's my encouragement to everybody. I said, don't go out and try to promote yourself. Just learn to be the person God created you to be. And then he'll expand your ministry. And uh, mm-hmm. I can truly say that. I can. I wasn't looking for this. It just came. So thank you, God, I guess. I'm coming to pinch myself at times and saying, why in the world did you choose me? <laughs> just a farm boy from Minnesota. It's, uh, it's, it's great advice. And um, I'd love to talk more, and we will talk a lot more about Freedom in Christ Ministries. Before we get there, why not take me back to that moment where you had that experience of God, where you started to know God for yourself? Can you remember what happened? Was this a kind of moving from, from the head to the heart? You'd, you'd grown up going to church week in, week out, but, but clearly there was a distinct thing that needed to happen for all the dots to be connected. Well, in my own personal life, I uh, was happened to be raised a Methodist, and when I met my wife, she was Catholic. We compromised, became Anglican or Episcopalian, <laughs> and uh, or uh, Episcopal. And um, and I was an aerospace engineer at the time. I, I just had my first family. I bowled in two bowling leagues. I golfed in two golfing leagues. Kind of the all-American boy. Didn't smoke or drink. And then somebody kind of invited us to a lay institute for evangelism. I really didn't know what that was. My thinking at the time is that if you don't knock on my door, I won't knock on yours. You can believe whatever you want to believe. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a trick. I mean, God, it, it was a setup. Uh, engineers don't work at night, but I needed some computer time and free me up during the daytime to go out to this late Institute for Evangelism, only to discover I was learning to share my faith and didn't have any. And... Uh, I mean, that was that was a pivotal time, obviously, in my life. I mean, I gave my heart to Christ in the middle of that week and went out door to door on Saturday, which was unbelievable to me that I would even do that and led three people to Christ. And so it, it was it was just totally life transforming. I mean, bookstores appeared out of nowhere and periodicals I never noticed before. And it wasn't too long after that that I felt God calling me to go into full time ministry, which. Um, 
in one way surprised me, another way didn't. And uh, but I didn't know enough about myself at that time or about God to, you know, make quality decisions. So I kind of looked back and said, "Thank God I was led to a conservative, you know, seminary and uh, non-denominational." So I didn't plug into any particular, you know, uh, theology or church tradition or whatever else. It was just a biblical seminary, and. Um, Gosh, I'm really thankful for that to this day. You know, it, I, I don't feel obligated to defend myself or defend any kind of historical perspective on Christianity. I kind of got the clear thing. So, and then then ended up um, being a pastor. And, but I had people in my church that had problems I didn't have adequate answers for. And I knew that. In my heart, I believe Christ was the answer to truth that set people free. But in many ways, I just didn't see it. I, I was able to lead a lot of people to Christ. But they struggle with the same old issues. Why is that? Where's the new creation in Christ? And then we went through a major crisis with my wife's health. And um, that was my motivation, essentially, to get my doctor to get her out of a pastor role she didn't feel comfortable in. And um, and out of that, all of a sudden, I got a telephone call. If I've taken a position yet and talked and invited me to teach a Telvin School of Theology, I said, boy, coming out of the blue, <laughs> where did that come from? And yet I held that position for 10 years, but I went there with that burden, you know, more as a learner than a teacher at the time in my own life. And actually it was there that I really discovered what it really meant to be a child of God and who I am in Christ. And then I went through several paradigm shifts, kind of, you're you're talking right now to a left-brained aerospace engineer and uh, suddenly realized that this is not a biblical worldview that I was born in. And I had to adopt a more Christian biblical worldview. And uh, so I started a, a master's of theology elective at the seminary. And it just was a phenomenon. It just doubled every year. And I started to see the lives of our students change and realize mm -hmm. that uh, we're all in a spiritual battle. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but somehow or another to get a holistic answer for our people. That That was really you know, deeply ingrained in me from the time that I was very, very young. I said, you know, do you have a spiritual problem? Do you have a psychological problem? Do you have a physical problem? The answer, of course, is yes. And and trying to find some true integration to where that's all essentially addressed and combined in a way. And and I think God, that's how God has led me over the years. I may be a pastor teacher that's written books on anger and anxiety disorders and depression and chemical addiction and sexual addiction all from a Christian worldview perspective. But you have to have that perspective. You have to realize that we're in a spiritual battle as well as I've got psychological problems I need to deal with. It's interesting, isn't it? As you say, in our in our Western mindset, we like to have distinct categories and boxes. And well, that's either a spiritual problem or it's a mental problem or it's a physical one. And I, I go to different people. If it's a spiritual problem, I go to my pastor. If it's a health problem, I go to my doctor. And everything is divided up that way, both in society and increasingly in the church. I guess your contention is that a, a biblical worldview, there's not such clear distinctions between those boxes, but rather God has created us as a whole individual and these things are connected. Was that a, a revelation for you that became quite significant in your teaching and in what you went on to do? Well, it, it did from the beginning. Uh, you know, and I thank God I look back at what an engineer you know, degree brought me, taught me how to think. You can accept that. Having a research doctorate helped me from extrapolating simple things to the bigger things, you know, and without realizing, I said, you 
you have to put that together. But even as an engineer, uh, my specialty was a systems engineer, I, the black box kind of a thing. Uh, I To get down to the intricate design, it would pass it off to more of a designer. But I wanted to see how it fit together. And um, and that just the way I think. That's the way God created me personally. And uh, so what I've ended up with in, in my last book, Thriving Through the End Times, I said, well, what are you, Anderson? Are you a psychologist or are you a missiologist? Or are you a theologian? And I said, well, in one sense, I'm all of those. And uh, even denominationally, I've had people tell me, I can't peg you. I said, try Christian. <laughs> Isn't that interesting how we want to pigeonhole that? And, and what's worse about it, Sam, is disciplines are becoming more specialized and more single focused. I mean, just look at medicine today. You know, I'm going this afternoon to have a pre-op for a shoulder surgery. All it does is work on arms. He doesn't know anything about nutrition. He doesn't know anything about, you know, internal medicine. It just works on arms. And, uh, and unfortunately, this age of specialization has just taken us away from a truly integrated, biblical, holistic answer, which I find terribly unfortunate. And uh, we, we just get put in these little boxes. And uh, I said, well, take a good look and read what I have to say. And I, I don't think you can put me in that box. Can you um, give me some examples from your pastoral ministry where you'd be meeting with people and you mentioned you'd be coming across these problems that people had in their life and initially you you didn't know how to help or, or how to solve those. Can you give me some examples of what, what those cases were you're experiencing as a pastor? And then later, what you learned that would then help you and has helped other pastors in, in similar scenarios? Well, that's the big question. I'll give you a first uh, one of my first early examples. We had a guy in our church. He was a pain in the neck to us and his wife and his kids. And and one day he came to me and said, you know, Pastor, I have this, this kind of like voice in my head. Really? Now, the truth of the matter is, at that time, I didn't know what that was. And frankly, if I knew, I wouldn't know how to, how to deal with it. And uh, now I could would have sat down and said, Sam, we need to talk. Let me see if I can help you with this and get rid of that. And uh, But not knowing that, I saw his marriage come to an end. I saw his family fall apart and walk away from the church. And that's happening, unfortunately, all over the world. And uh, And the problem is... If you go in and share that information with a secular psychologist, you're hearing voices, he's going to consider you anti-psychotic of some kind. If you got fear, you're paranoid. <laughs> and so we got all these labels we put on people because of the symptoms that we observe without actually explaining that. I said, I'm not the only person dealing with folks who are hearing voices. That's happening all over the world. The difference is the secular world is going to somehow or another, because they have no alternative, is to look for some kind of a natural answer to that. And so chances are they're going to get medicated. I mean, you put an antipsychotic type of a medication and then kind of walk away and smile and say, well, the voices stop. Well, so did everything else. You just narcotized it. You haven't really dealt with the issue. You take away the medicine, the voices are back. And uh, so I've had the privilege to sit down with people who are struggling with these kind of things, have no mental peace whatsoever, and, and sit down with them in a holistic way Help them submit to God, resist the devil, and walk off free. Many experiencing the peace of God that passes all understanding, you know, for the first time in their life. 
have no no that kind of mental issue. And so the secular worldists will say, well, that's a chemical imbalance. Now stop for a moment. How can a chemical produce a personality and a thought? How can my neurotransmitters randomly create a thought that I'm opposed to thinking? And you have a natural explanation for that? There isn't one, to be honest with you. But what you'll hear, I gave him that antipsychotic medication, and that seemed to at least quiet the voices. And I said, what if you could get rid of them? What, what if this... What if scripture is right in the, and Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, in, in the last day, people will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceiving spirits, teachings of demons. What if, what if they're doing that? What if they're paying attention to that? What's that going to sound like? It's, it's going to sound like all the kind of things every counselor in the country is dealing with. You know, it's interesting. You know, I'm a practical theologian. I, I'm a pastor, teacher, according to scripture. But the American Association of Christian Counseling is the largest body of that kind in the world, 50,000 members or something like that. Every two years, they have an international meeting. I have presented them for the last four times, and I've had the biggest workshops they've had. 700-some people will show up for a workshop. You know how many classes I've taken on counseling and psychology? One or two. <laughs> it's all come from Scripture. And uh, and I get this question all the time. Where can I go to school and learn what you're teaching? And I said, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I said, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a professional counselor and get licensed by the state? Take your choice. Go out and find them. They're going to give you enough education so you can pass the state exams. You want to be a pastoral counselor? You want to minister to people? Get a good theological foundation. And then sit with us for a little while, and I'll show you how Christ is the wonderful counselor and how he can set captives free and heal the wounds of the brokenhearted. You know, there's nothing new here, Sam. It's all right there in Scripture. It's been there all along. You give an example of how sometimes that the, med the medical approach of medicine, drugs, may stop those voices but may not cure them. And in that particular example, perhaps a deeper spiritual route, we could say, of someone need needing deliverance. but are there also cases where it's the other way around? Are there also cases where a pastor might encounter someone and think, I think you're demonically oppressed and try and pray and try and cast something out when in reality, that person didn't have a demon, they needed medical attention. Does it, does it happen both, way, both ways round? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, it's in uh, probably looking at something with a uh, uh, dissociative disorder, for instance, and, uh, and say a pastor uncovers that and all of a sudden a different personality surfaces and he thinks it's the demon and tries to cast it out. Well, of course, that's just going to be feel like rejection to that person. On the other hand, you go to a secular counselor and a demonic thing happened and he thinks it's an alternative personality and they're going to try to integrate that into their system. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And so, yes. So the question then becomes for the pastor, how do you discern? How do you discern what is needing a spiritual uh, cure, what is needing a medical cure? Is it one or the other? Is it both? This this, this is a challenge, surely, for many pastors. Uh, well, if the writer of Hebrews said it very clearly. It, it, we need to have our senses trained to discern good and evil. So that's part of it. Uh, the other part of it is, and this is, sounds strange to a lot of people, I don't necessarily try to separate that. I just help this person submit to God and resist the devil. 
Well, there's no devil there to resist. I just help this person submit to God. And uh, in uh, going through our steps to freedom, the worst thing that can happen is you're going to really be ready for communion on next Sunday. And so I'm not going to apologize to anybody about that. It's uh, uh, so I don't whether the problem is 50 percent spiritual or 90 percent spiritual. It really doesn't make any difference to me. If you've got truly a holistic answer and a means by which you can bring that about, uh, you're doing nobody any damage. Now, let me just say this clearly. I was accepted to medical school. I went this route instead. And my brother taught medical school. My sister's a, a nurse. My daughter's a nurse. <laughs> Medicine's a big part of my life. I thank God for the hospital. You know, I think the combination of God you know, working through the hospital to bring about the kind of healing that only a doctor can can accomplish. And the combination between that and the church is the answer that I'm looking for. Uh, I uh, I wrote a book with a doctor called The Biblical Guide to Alternative Medicine, because I think we need to be thinking very clearly as to how we approach these medical problems in our life. So I think God can Hail and does in some cases, usually after I've helped them find their freedom in Christ, by the way. And uh, I think uh, what doctors are telling us that the majority of our people are sick for psychosomatic reasons. You'll never hear less than a 50% percentage on that one, by the way. Whose responsibility is that? The doctors don't want it. <laughs> Trust me. You know, they hate to tell a patient you're a head case. You know, they don't like to tell that. And that person's going to feel insulted when they walk out. So doctors that, that I know, they love what I'm doing. They love that combination, the Christian doctors that I know. You know, help them with their psychosomatic illnesses. And I think it's the responsibility of the church to do that. I think we have to teach them how they can uh, cast their anxiety upon Christ I, and how the joy of the Lord can overcome the problems of depression. Uh, trust me, if, if you read my books on that deal with the mind and emotion, I think I'm about as holistic as you can get. But frankly, my Bible reads, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Why not be able to go to the church, clean house, find your freedom in Christ? You still got a physical problem? Go see your doctor. And, and what began is, is a very personal thing for you. You mentioned going to seminary and this, this question dominating your, your studies and, and studying kind of spiritual warfare for, for the first time. What began as a personal quest for you has, of course, since then mushroomed, grown, international ministry, books that have sold millions, many, many churches running courses. Can you remember a particular time in your life where you kind of sat back and thought, oh, wow, this this thing in Freedom in Christ has gone so much bigger than what I ever could have imagined? Was was there a kind of tipping point where you realized this had, this had become something kind of bigger than you and bigger than just your own personal searching? Uh, probably has been several times like that. I mean, I, I said earlier, I said, I, I kind of pinched myself. I said, really, God, you chose me to make this message available? I, it, it's astonishing. I, I, we just got back uh, from my international meeting in Northampton in England. And uh, I just sat there in tears uh, while this pastor from the, the States is a missionary uh, went over to Rwanda to start a ministry and they're supposed to teach in the school. They had two students. I mean, the guy just struggled for three or four years. Wonder what am I doing here? Finally, he just realized that the whole school thing was kind of a sham and went out to local villages and then got involved in the local prison. And all of a sudden, it just exploded on him. 
And he started seeing God set captive free. And I realized, you know, if I had never written, you know, taken that opportunity, you know, that wouldn't have happened. And uh, and you multiply that all over the world. It, it is, it's astonishing. It's just uh, the power of the written word is, is uh, goes beyond my expectations. And Sam, I never even sought that out. Uh, my first kind of talk, it started with that Fuller Seminary. They invited us to, uh, to a symposium to present something on spiritual warfare on a graduate level in seminaries. And I was the only one there representing pastoral ministries. There were some missiologists and theologians. And Gospel Light came to me at that time and said, can we do your book? I said, what book? And, uh, <laughs> and I said, well, if you're talking about what I'm teaching at the seminary, I said, that's probably two books. And then, well, we only want to do one. Harvest Halls called me two days later and said, we want to do the other one. I don't even know how that happened. Well, that was Victor Over Darkness and the Bondage Breaker, and who have both sold over two million copies and continue on the bestseller list for 33 years. So it's a God thing, Sam. I, I can honestly say that. I'm not trying to sound overly pious. But I'm just as surprised as anybody, especially my high school English teacher. She'd be shocked that I wrote all these books. I mean, uh, so it, it's I'm, I'm astounded. I'm thankful. I'm just grateful every day that, uh, you know, that God made this happen. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. It's interesting that, as I say, so much of, of your work has been around spiritual warfare and it's a very serious very weighty topic and you you mentioned in passing at one point in your life your wife being very unwell i guess the question i wanted to ask has been has birthing and leading this ministry led to personal spiritual battles for yourself or to put it another way what has been the cost to you personally because it's easy to talk about isn't it great the books have sold and the courses are worldwide but one imagines that you don't do a work like this without any kind of opposition. <laughs> well, that's why I wrote the book, my memoir, Rough Road to Freedom. <laughs> you know, when I entered into this ministry, just exploring it, teaching at the seminary, um, I probably was not very well prepared uh, as most missionaries aren't and most pastors aren't, to be honest with you, to deal with, you know, kind of the onslaught that you have. But uh, when my wife went through that period of illness for 15 months, we lost everything we had. I mean, God just literally stripped me down to nothing. We lost our house, uh, everything. And um, and that really turned out to be the birth of Freedom in Christ Ministries. That was what God did in my life is he brought me to the end of my resources so I could discover his. We don't want to talk much about brokenness today, but it was a broken time of my life. And uh, and God had to show me how much my self-sufficient Norwegian stoic farm background was my greatest enemy to my sufficiency in Christ. And uh, it, I wouldn't even perceive it as a sin at the time. 
And then my daughter, when she was 15, uh, was raped. And uh, we don't believe in abortion. And so my first grandchild was uh, a product of that. And uh, so, yeah, we went through some some really tough times. And uh, it's tough when you watch your family go through it for what you're doing. That was difficult. And then we went through uh, uh, another period that really led to the birth of uh of a lot of the writing in my life and so and and truth of the matter is here i am a member of the evangelical theological society and i feel god was running me to write a book of spiritual warfare that's like academic suicide and so i felt this obligation you know to truly be holistic to be to what i'm writing to be true for all people all times taking into account all reality you you can't you know, separate these issues. They're they're uh, an integral part of the whole. And uh, so, yeah, I had opposition. I had a guy in a uh, called wrote articles about me, called me the bondage maker. People canceled conferences because you know they read his junk. And um, he's been sensed, uh, I think, uh, humiliated. But you know, and I couldn't have that pound of flesh. I couldn't retaliate in kind. I just had to take it. And my attitude at the time was, I said, God, you raise this up, you can bring it down. I, I'm not going to do anything to defend myself. I, I was just trying to follow Christ's example. When reviled, didn't revile in return and kept silent before his accusers. And I said, I just trusted God during that time. And frankly, he made it right. And then the one I went public, this was ministry from 1990 to 94. Every time I started a conference, I'd have a spiritual attack three o'clock in the morning. I mean, a direct three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> frontal attack. You know, the first time that happened to me, I, you know, couldn't say anything. It felt like a pressure on my chest, something grabbing my throat. And uh, that happened every night before I started a conference for four years. And I just learned how to deal with that. I said, submit to God, resist the devil. God knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. So you can always submit to God inwardly. And we, as soon as you do that, you'll pre up and all you'd have to say is Jesus and it stops. And um, so, you know, it's annoyance, but it, it but it went on for four years and then just stopped. And uh, it led me to ask a question at conferences. I said, how many have had that kind of an experience? Have woken up precisely a time in the morning, like three o'clock in the morning and um, alertly awakened or terrified. And at least a third of the people would raise their hands every time. Uh, and I would take that the next step and said, well, it could have felt like a pressure in your chest, something grabbing your throat. Call up in the name of the Lord and you'll be saved, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't physically do it. And uh, again, another third would raise their hands. And almost nobody's ever shared that with anybody ever before. They just kind of struggle privately with that. Well, they, I said, read Job chapter four and you'll find the very identical experience he's talking about. It, it's a spiritual, direct spiritual attack like that. So uh, learning to deal with that just took away the fear of it for me. I've never... I've encountered, a, I've been startled by the demonic concessions, but but never responded in fear. And I've had to deal with um, hardcore Satanists over the years on the hardcore issues. I mean, for two years, God took me through a crash course in hardcore underground Satanism. What you see isn't the big issue. It's what you don't see uh, that's uh, most threatening to the church. So I wrote a chapter in that in my latest book. And told them about that experience. But all of that led me to say, yes, it's out there. Now go preach the gospel. 
But I'm so glad that God gave me that exposure to that because as I traveled around the country, uh, given the opportunity, I found pastor after pastor saying their experience with people who've been richly abused. And um, I mean, I had no idea. I mean, honestly, when I first went public with my ministry, that that this is something across the country and around the world. And uh, so another surprise that God had to show me. But I didn't even look for it. He just brought it to me. And uh, so, yeah, it's been quite a journey. What you just say there reminds me of the, the C.S. Lewis quote, which I'll probably butcher. But it's along the lines of the two mistakes people make with the devil is either pretending he doesn't exist or becoming a bit too interested and obsessed with what he does. And I think what you said there is very noticeable about God revealed this to you. But the answer was, right, get out there and, and preach the gospel and not unhelpfully dwell on on the ins and outs of this because you see that sometimes don't you i mean some christians even in what you've said so far some christians might be thinking i'm a bit skeptical this is outside of my knowledge not sure if that's true that that such spiritual opposition could be real and waking people up at three and there's a kind of skeptical approach to does the devil already do that but there's also those christians that become very very interested and want to look up all the details about satanism or whatever it is and C.S. Lewis's view was sort of both extremes can be unhelpful. Would you would you agree with that? Totally, totally. In fact, uh, I wrote my last book, and it is, I'm not going to write another book, Thriving Through the End Times, where I really try to, to uh, show that balance. Let, set aside every encumbrance and the sin that's so easily, what are the encumbrances? And uh, when I try to create a grid that we live in a spiritual world, we live in a natural world, and we got two types of players. We have humans and we have spiritual beings. And finding the balance between that, to me, is just, it's critically. And I say, you get too away from Christ, too unbalanced, it becomes obvious. You become either a legalist or you become too liberal or you, you're looking too much at some kind of a human person to deliver you or you're and dwell into spiritism. Most people don't realize, especially if you live in the Western world, the primary spiritual orientation of the world is spiritism. Any mythologist will tell you that. Uh, you go to Latin America, you go to Africa, you go to any of those places, spiritism is the ruling public belief. It's not defined, but uh, they're seeking their quack doctors and their shamans and their witch doctors to you cast spells or find the illnesses or somehow or another appease those deities by sacrificing baskets of fruit and somehow or another protect yourself that way. That's the dominant religious orientation of the world. And uh, so you have to incorporate that kind of thinking because I've gone to those cultures and uh, they love what I'm sharing, by the way. <laughs> I said, you mean you? I, I actually have authority over that? I don't have to appease the deities? And I said, absolutely. I said, if you got a whole gospel it isn't enough that your sins are forgiven. God also gave you a new life. And that new life is, is something you have in Christ. It's not what you get when you die. You get eternal life the moment that you're born again. But he also came to undo the works of Satan. It's that third part of the gospel that the third world is waiting to hear. And most of our Western missionaries have not really understood that. And so a lot of my work is to try to reinforce and help missionaries to go into that spiritual worldview that they have that's different from yours. What do you hope your legacy will be? Well, uh, I, I can be careful how I say this. I, uh, 
what would you want to be known for? On a personal level, I can't think of anything more that I would rather be known for than my kindness. I came across that proverb years ago. What's desirable in a man is his kindness. I think we've lost that. I think we've lost the sense of compassion. Go on where it learned what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. If I've had the privilege to help people, I think it's come from that. Comes from that. It doesn't come from five earned degrees and two doctorates, frankly. That was just credentials to help me establish some credibility. Much of what I've learned, I've learned just working with people and reading my Bible. Um, But I think that uh, the church has kind of lost its mission because we've lost the sense of the fact that we're going to be known for our love. And... uh, And somewhere we have to glorify God in our bodies. That means the fruit of the Spirit should be manifesting in our life. And uh, I've asked women in conferences all over the world, I said, what would you prefer in us men, strong masculinity or kindness? And then I would kind of go like this here. And they would almost shout it, you know, kindness, kindness. And uh, so... I kind of leave with that. I, I, uh, uh, they may, may not see that. They may like what I wrote. They may like what I, or whatever else. But, uh, I think brokenness was the key to freedom in Christ ministry in my own personal life. But I, I think what enabled me to talk to a lot of people around the world was they sensed that within me that if you shared something with me, my only response is I'm going to use that information to help you, not hurt you. I think that's very, very significant and, and very timely word, really. The um, Obviously, we're on base, based in the UK, but even just being on social media and noticing how Christians will talk to each other, whether in the UK or the US, you can certainly make the argument what you just said, that we're supposed to be known as Christians for our love. And yet, sadly, in so much of our dialogue, even within the church, doesn't come across like that to the to the rest of the world. Some people wonder if social media has made that worse. But whatever the case, it seems that increasingly the number of people I, I speak to would say, yeah, it is. A, it seems to be a growing problem that, that Christians don't show love to one another. And it's such a fundamental basic thing. Well, it's the absolute core. I mean, you know, it's the goal of our instruction, Paul wrote, is love. It's character transformation. And um, John keeps telling the story again and again. <laughs> I love John. You know, I, I, I kind of have the mentality of, of, of a Paul. But if I had to emulate one disciple, it would probably be John. You know, the one Jesus loved and uh, the one who stayed with him at the cross and the one who took care of his mother. I uh, So I'm kind of a fan of John and the Gospel of John. And uh, mm. 
you kind of realize in your own life, you're kind of this way, but you would really like to be more this way. And, um, and so, you know, uh, I was a left brain aerospace engineer and, uh, but in the transitioning to into ministry and becoming the person God created me to be, uh, somewhere along that line, it's going to come out, you know, uh, with that quiet and gentle spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. We, we don't run roughshod over people. We don't, we're just available. And, uh, and that's, that's part of ministry of being a pastor. I'm here for you. And, uh, and then to recognize if you don't want me, I'll wait. How have you dealt with the, with the criticisms that have come? You mentioned one in passing just now, because there have been criticisms of, of freedom in Christ, but how have you discerned where people have been con- constructively criticizing and how, how have you reflected and thought, maybe I do need to tweak my teaching there? And how do you discern the difference between that and someone who is just out to get you, is not coming from a position of love? And has that been... Has that been a lesson of sort of learning which criticisms to, to listen to and what to take on board and, and what to say, no, I don't need to hear that to? Uh, woe unto you if all men speak well of you. <laughs> so if you're looking to be a man pleaser in the crowd, I said, you're not a bond servant of Christ. And so uh, it's um, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, it's... Uh, no good deed goes unpublished. <laughs> unpublished. It it is a tough part of ministry. I I, uh, I you know expect the kind of criticism from the world when it comes from within. It's it it's uh, it's kind of a tough thing. And then not to retaliate. You know, I said on the other hand, what you brought up is critical. If you don't listen to your critics and have an answer for the hope that lies within you, it's part of our growing process. It uh, the rebukes and reproofs are our way of life. I stum- a passage that every believer has heard before: the word of God is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. I wish that was happening today. It's not happening. What's happening today, and it's happening right at the seminary level. The word of God is profitable for teaching and training in competence. See what's wrong. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training, not in competence, but in righteousness. Uh, I've been in higher education for years. I taught a seminary for 10 years. I've seen people come in and leave no more mature than when they came in, more knowledgeable, but not more mature. In fact, come on, come on, kind of arrogant, little theologians, you know. I'm going to go out and teach the people, and um, and which is really kind of sad in a way. And most of them haven't even ever dealt with their own issues. And so, you, as much as it hurts, you have to take a you know good look at what the critics are saying, and if there's any truth into it, own up to it. If you're wrong, you don't have a defense. If you're right, you don't need one. That's the hard one <laughs> is to live, and that's what Jesus did. He was right. And they crucified him. I said, well, I'm not looking forward to being crucified. But somewhere along the line, if you retaliate in kind, then you're no different than what they are. So, you know, you're going to have people 
a pastor come up to me and say, you know, I'm just really concerned about this. I'm responsible for teaching my people. You know, how do you respond to this kind of thing? I'll stay up all night with that guy. You know, he's doing the right thing. He's questioning me for the right motives. And, uh, but you got to look through and see what the attitude is of that person. And there's where discernment comes in and saying, I'm not, I'm not going to spend any time with you. <laughs> you, know, you know, your whole attitude is wrong. You know, you, you're, if you can't see the arrogance in that person, then you're, and you're just button heads with somebody and it does no good whatsoever. I mean, so if people yeah. want to argue with me, I say, go out and start without me. I'll be out there in five minutes. <laughs> you want to work with me to discern the truth? I'll stay up all night with you. Any examples of where you have shifted your teaching or your emphasis in the time since freedom in Christ began? Because obviously a decades long period and we're all learning, aren't we, as, as we go. Have there been any examples where you have, have shifted your approach a bit, um, either because you feel like God's spoken to you or as a result of some of that um, criticism that may have come your way? Well, uh, I remember when Steve Douglas was president of Crew, he quoted Bill Bright and he said, all you got to do with your critics is I'll truth them. <laughs> I've liked that. That's kind of stuck with me. I just keep sharing the truth in love. Do it in love. It, um, in terms of emphasis, you know, as a message, what would I want to be known for? I help people find their identity and their freedom in Christ. That, that's the core for me. And, um, and so that really came out over victory over doctors and monetary. I could have stopped there, you know, and just, kind of rested on it over the years. But I wanted to see how this related, how integrated into anger, for instance, which is pandemic, as you well know, and all the anxiety disorder. People are paralyzed by fear all over the world. Um, frankly, it's the number one issue we deal with in people's life. Uh, and, uh, and you know, a blues epidemic. We got so many people sitting in our churches taking medication for anxiety disorders and depression. All of which can be, I shouldn't say all, many of it, most of it, in my estimation, can be dealt with by uh, a holistic answer to deal with their life. But you're a, you're a doctor and, and um, you got 10 minutes with a patient and you correctly diagnose depression. What's he going to do? He's going to write out a prescription. And worse, he's going to follow up on it. So you don't know what the long term was, any good or effective or, or whatsoever else. And so... I don't really blame a doctor. If I was a doctor and that's all I could do, maybe it's what I would do myself. But I, I think we've got a, a much more holistic answer for people. Taking a pill to cure your body is commendable. Taking a pill to cure your soul is deplorable. And God help us to know the difference. You, you mentioned in passing, I'd love just, just quickly to, to dig into it a little bit more, which is forgiveness and unforgiveness. Because, again, I, I know that's come through in a lot of Freedom in Christ materials. And I think sometimes Christians are shocked at the power there is in, in forgiveness and how holding on to unforgiveness actually hurts us. Can you just explain it just briefly the spiritual significance, the spiritual power in forgiving and maybe a practical example of Oh, well, there's no more important issue. People that do our ministry around the world, if you ask any of them, what affords Satan the greatest access to the church, they would all answer unforgiveness. And um, uh, it is the biggest issue we deal with in people's lives. In our, in our steps to freedom, the repentance process that they go through, when they literally pray and ask God who they need to forgive, God will show them. They will, I'll come 20, 30 names. And then I'll explain to them, you know, 
what it means to forgive them from your heart. It's um, uh, forgiveness is not forgetting, by the way. Uh, God says, I'll remember your sin no more. That doesn't mean God forgets. He couldn't if he wanted to. It means he won't use the past against you. It, um, if you're going to forgive another person for what they did, then you're agreeing to live with the consequences of their sin. You say, well, that's not fair. Actually, you're right. It isn't fair, but you'll have to anyhow. We're all living with the consequences of somebody else's sin. The choice is to do that in the bondage of bitterness or the freedom of forgiveness. And so I encourage people. I said, let it go. Let God deal with it. Revenge is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God will make this right in the end. You have to accept the provision God has given us. We're to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. You forgive another person from your heart. It's the most Christ-like thing you will do. If you don't, then you're still hooked to that person. You say, why should I let them off my hook? That's exactly why you're still hooked to them. That's when you wake up at night and can't get to sleep because of the injustice of the problem. Where is the justice? It's the cross. Christ died once for all. My sins, your sins, his sins, her sins. So it is a crisis of the will, but it's a crisis to allow God to enter into the heart so you can truly forgive from your heart. And so when we encourage people to say, I forgive that person, what for? Stay with that till every member of pain comes up, every hurt. If you forgive generically, you get generic freedom. And uh, so I've asked people, I said, what did you forgive them for? I don't want to talk about it. Say they really haven't yet. And, and so it's, it, it, that's a skill part of our ministry that we help people process things legitimately. Now, let me differentiate because this is critical. If you go to church, you remember your brother has something against you. Leave your offering and go be reconciled. In other words, you hurt somebody else. Go to that person. Seek their forgiveness. Make retribution if it's necessary. But that's a different issue than my need for to give somebody uh, has hurt me. In that case, don't go to that person. Go to God. Initially, it's primarily an issue between you and your heavenly father. That's why you can sit in a pastor's office and forgive somebody from your heart and walk off free. Your freedom can't be dependent upon somebody you have no right or ability to control. It may lead to reconciliation. It may not. Uh, but you've done what you were responsible for. And uh, so I, I just try to encourage you. It's for you. It's for your freedom. To forgive another person to set a captive free and realize you were the captive. Just before we finish, and you've been very generous with your time, Dr. Anderson, I did want to zoom out and ask one last question. And that is about the spiritual state of America. If you look at both the UK and the US, the statistics tend to show a decline in the numbers of people identifying as Christian and certainly a decline in the number of people attending church. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the church in the U.S.? I'm, uh, I'm always optimistic for the true church. You know, nobody can keep us from being the person God created us to be. I'm not optimistic for the established church in American England. Um, much more so, by the way, in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, things are doing very, very well there. I, I think the greatest contribution of my ministry will be in Africa and Latin America, uh, personally. Uh, which is why I wrote this last book, Thriving Through the End Times. I'm very, very concerned that we're losing people to ministry because they haven't really grabbed onto the real thing. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? 
And Peter says, knowing these things are going to come to pass, what manner of man ought you to be? So the, the thrust of the book essentially is to expose these extreme things that people get themselves into and the sin that so easily entangles us. And if there was ever a time to clean house, <laughs> personally, it is right now, in my estimation, uh, right now. I think the uh, the carrot before the horse has always kind of been there in terms of the second coming of Christ. Uh, you know, if God was going to come back tomorrow, do you want to be having an affair? Do you want to be out of fellowship with other people? Do you, you know, I've always been such a strong believer. Keep daily rituals. Keep keep things resolved. Don't 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 wait. Don't put things off. Get right with God now. And uh, I don't know if this is the end times or not. Everything sure seems to be stacking up that way. And if truth sets us free, can you imagine anything that's going to threaten that more than artificial intelligence? They can make a movie of me with my words and my voice and, and say exactly opposite what I don't believe. If that isn't scary, I don't know what in the world is. Don't be deceived. Deception yeah. is a major struggle in spiritual warfare. That's why if you want to know what God's perspective is in this world right now, read it. It's John chapter 17. I ask not that you take them out of this world, but you keep them from the evil one. How? Sanctify them in thy word. The word is truth. The church is a pillar and support of truth. You can't compromise what you believe or who you are. Well, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us on the profile today. It's been a pleasure to chat. God bless you, brother. You're doing a good work. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Thank you so much for listening to The Profile podcast this week. It's been great to have your company with us. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Neil T. Anderson, founder of Freedom in Christ Ministries. If you did enjoy it, can you do me a massive favor and give us a rating and a review wherever you are currently listening to this podcast? It really helps other people to discover the show. Just a quick rating and a review right now would really help us out. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.